Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, as we continue to work our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Tonight we find ourselves in the section verses 18 to 21, but I do want to read the chapter beginning in verse 1. So Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we pray now for the Spirit to guide us as we consider this passage of Scripture, specifically dealing with the filling of the Spirit. And may you help us, God, to, to understand your word, help us to understand what the will of the Lord is, as we are commended in this passage by the Apostle Paul, and cause us to walk circumspectly in all things, and give us that wisdom that is necessary to redeem the time, because the days are evil. Give us grace, Lord God, to properly and rightly represent you in this lower world. Forgive us when we stumble and when we sin. Cleanse us in that precious blood of the Lamb, and empower and enable 
enable us by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are in the practical section of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. It begins in chapter 4, properly at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So con uh, walking there has the idea of conduct or conversation, the way that you live your life. He cautions us against the way that we used to walk in 4.17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the future of their mind. And then he gives us concrete examples in chapter 5. We're to walk in love, according to 5, 1, and 2. We're to walk in light, according to 5, 8. And we're to walk in wisdom, according to 5, 15. Now, 5, 15 to 21, as I said last week, is a particular unit. So going back to chapter 5, notice the command, verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So that's the general exhortation. You're supposed to walk in a manner that is consistent with the gospel that requires wisdom. And wisdom is basically skill in application of the knowledge that you have. And then he gives this particular statement in verse 17, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, that's not esoteric, that's not mysticism, that's not let go and let God, rather that is search the scriptures. How do we know what the will of the Lord is? Well, the Lord has revealed himself in his holy scriptures. Last week I mentioned specifically the book of Proverbs. Wouldn't it be nice if there happened to be a book that existed that would inform us about wisdom from Christ on how to live this life? Well, the book of Proverbs certainly functions that way, among other books, of course, but in uh, terms of giving us practical information on how to navigate in this present evil age, Christ speaking as wisdom in the book of Proverbs is most helpful and most excellent. Now notice he goes on to tell us uh, first a prohibition and then a positive statement or exhortation. He says in verse 18, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the prohibition is simple, do not be drunk with wine. And then there is this exhortation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then structurally, the following language in verses 19 to 21 give the effect or the evidence or the manifestation of one who is filled with the Spirit. In other words, how do we know if somebody is filled with the Spirit? Because they speak in tongues, because they prophesy, because they're able to raise the dead. That's not what Paul says here. Paul says very simply, the way that we know that somebody is filled with the Spirit is the way that they speak to others, whether in private or in the context of corporate worship. We know that they are filled with the Holy Spirit because they sing and make melody in their heart to the Lord. We know that they're filled with the Holy Spirit because they give God thanks for all things through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that they're filled with the Holy Spirit because they submit to one another in the fear of God. So verse 21 then functions as a transition verse that brings us into the household code, uh, verses 22 to chapter 6 and verse 9. So the general statement of verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God, is then applied in concrete situations from verse 22 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. Wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. So it's not just this vague sort of concept about submission out there, but there are specific applications in terms of, of, of submission relative to the people of God, where they're at in their various stations of life. So that's sort of the overarching structure. So tonight I want to look at the provision of the Holy Spirit in verses 18 to 21. And under this consideration, I've got three things. First, the prohibition in verse 18a. 
no pun intended, with reference to American prohibition. I just got that, Isaac. Secondly, the exhortation in verse 18b. And then thirdly, the manifestation in verses 19 to 21. Now, there's going to be some things here tonight that I'm going to ask you to think with me through. Uh, no firm conclusions are going to be made tonight, but there are some things or direction that I hope that we'll pursue in the future. I'd like to finish the book of Ephesians and then do a series of sermons on our, at our Sunday night services on ecclesiastical matters, specifically matters concerning Christian worship. Uh, I think there's some things to tighten up ecclesiastically in the Lord's Supper. I think there's some things to tighten up in terms of regulative principle of worship. And as well, there has not been adequate time for me to spend on this passage that I was hoping. There were more things that came up in the summer. I had hoped to be ready to go and deal with all this sort of stuff tonight. Uh, it's not going to happen. The, the specific references to what Paul says there in verse 19 in terms of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we'll get there in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the prohibition. There's two things we should consider here. When Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, it is helpful for us to understand what the Bible says concerning the use of alcohol. Now, some would say, well, don't tell people that God says it's okay, because then they'll go out and get hammered. Well, we don't want to tell people something that the Bible doesn't say. We don't want to tell people non-truths. We don't want to tell people that, you know, fairies exist and magic potions exist and, and unicorns exist only for them to find out there's no such thing. The Bible does speak, on the one hand, favorably with reference to alcohol, and the Bible does speak, on the other hand, negatively with reference to alcohol. So I want to do a brief biblical theology of the use of alcohol in terms of one's Christian life. Whether you use it or not, that's between you and God. There's no rule for or against here in our church, but obviously there is a caution that we need to issue, as Paul does here. Notice, do not be drunk with wine. So as far as the Bible and alcohol, in the first place, the Bible does not condemn a moderate use of alcohol. Let me just repeat that. The Bible does not prohibit or condemn a moderate use of alcohol. If you turn back with me to the book of Deuteronomy, these laws are principles concerning tithing. If persons couldn't make it to Jerusalem, there was something built in to the system wherein they could use their tithe money to buy certain things to engage in a time of feasting and celebration with reference to God Almighty. And one of the things that God says is lawful for you to purchase, according to Deuteronomy 14, 26, is alcohol. If you notice, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink. Some translations have strong drink. Now, when we see that language of strong drink, it means don't drink as much. Because if the caution is against drunkenness, then the idea must be don't drink a lot of it. So if there is strong drink permitted, then the obvious caution is don't use it a lot. Don't do it immoderately. But notice the principle or notice at least the allowance or the usefulness here. You shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat it there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Again, a moderate use can lead to rejoicing in terms of who God is and his provision and kindness to us. Turn over to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, sort of like a celebration of creation. 
God works, or God worked in the, ter- in, in, the, in the making of all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And the psalmist essentially uh, celebrates God's creative handiwork in terms of this world around us. Notice what he says specifically in Psalm 104 at verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man. Those are positive things. Those are encouraging things. Those are blessings. And then notice that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. Now, brethren, because persons abuse alcohol, that does not mean it doesn't have a condoning in the word of God. Persons abuse sexuality all the time. People engage in adultery and fornication, and they distort what God had intended for it. But we never argue that the remedy for that is to abstain from sexual relations. No, the remedy is, is get married and control yourself and use it the way God intended for you to use it. The same argument obtains with reference to alcohol. Just because some people get hammered and they wrap their cars around telephone poles doesn't mean that God says, no, therefore, nobody can ever have a drink again. That's the way the government operates. Somebody goes in and shoots up a school. What's the government's response? Take the guns from lawful gun owners? God's not like that, thankfully. He gives us these rules concerning the moderate use of alcohol. Turn over to the book of Isaiah. And again, it's between you and God. I am not preaching to tell you to go get a glass of wine tonight. I'm not suggesting that at all. That's between you and God. But be careful about judging persons that do that. Oh, I I can't believe that they would do that. I, I can't believe that they would have a beer. Well, God says it's okay. If God says it's okay, why, why do we think we're holier and more righteous than God? Now notice in Isaiah 1, and you should understand the context. Isaiah 1, the prophet, is upbraiding the children of Israel for their sin against God. He's showing that the city is corrupt. He's showing that Jerusalem is, is filled with all manner of sin and lawlessness. He's showing that they are not faithfully fulfilling the obligations placed upon them by their covenant God. Notice specifically in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Now notice, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. What does that mean? It means that people are being cheated. It means that people are being deceived. It means that people are being gaslit in the holy city of Jerusalem. When you buy silver, there is this supposition that the silversmith hasn't mixed dross in it, that he's trying to get an ounce where there's really not an ounce, so he puts a bit of dross in there, so you, the hapless soul, pay your money and get not an ounce. Well, the same obtains with wine. Your wine is mixed with water. Now, there might have been instances and there might have been occasions, and again, in order to engage in this moderately, perhaps a bit of water in the wine, but I think the idea is simple. You have impurified, you have watered down the wine. You have taken something that was good, something that persons purchased, you cut it with water, and you're cheating them. You're jipping them, you're robbing them. Notice in John's Gospel, John chapter 2. 
John chapter 2. Again, a famous passage, one that certainly deals with alcohol. It wasn't, you know, grape juice that the Lord Jesus, you know, multiplied in terms of the wedding at Cana. Chapter 2 and verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. As far as I know, that's the only recorded command that Mary ever issues in the Bible. And what is it? Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> that's the only command that Mary issues in the Bible. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Roman Catholics should listen to Mary at that particular point. Whatever he says, do it. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says do, uh, to you, do it. Now there were uh, set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. What does that mean? It means that Jesus made good wine for a particular wedding. And we say, well, you know, they didn't really know what they were talking about. Brethren, do you realize that in the history of the world, at many epochs or times, wine and beer were safer to drink than water? We've got taps, I'm not necessarily endorsing tap water, but, but we've got filters and we've got access to, to lots and lots of water for the most part that doesn't end us in the hospital, doesn't promote you know, whatever sort of enteric disease in our stomachs. That's not always been the case throughout the history of the world. So oftentimes, and probably why Paul drops this prohibition, don't get drunk in a section that is, you know, some commentators wonder, why does he put 518A right where he puts 518A? I'll suggest in a moment why I think he does that. These men knew what bad wine was and they knew what good wine was. And this master of the ceremony said, you know, most people, they get everybody a little bit going and then, the, you know, by the seventh day, remember these were seven day feasts at these weddings. By the end, they just, you know, the swill, you know, dig out the bottom of the bucket and, you know, just throw it out there and the diehards will, you know, they'll like that. No, this man understood that it was good. Turn over the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, when Jesus institutes the, the Lord's Supper, it is in conjunction at that time with Passover. Now remember at the Passover, this was a special meal ordered, or ordained by God in Exodus chapter 12 to remember and reflect upon God's great redemptive act in bringing Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Let me just read to you what the sort of order was in terms of the Passover meal. It's a commentator by the name of Lane, uh, quoted by a guy I have. And he says, the festival in the wine is blessed, followed by the first cup. The food is then brought in, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, grains, stewed fruits, roast lamb. The son asks why this night is distinguished from others. The family head answers with the Exodus story, followed by praise to God for past and future redemption from the first part of the Hallel. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 to 118. In Matthew 26, 30, when it says they went out and sang a hymn, it wasn't something composed by Hillsong or Isaac Watts. It was something composed by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
He goes on to say the second cup of wine is drunk. The unleavened bread is blessed, broken, and distributed. Then it is eaten with the herbs and fruit, as the Father explains the meaning of the bread. This is followed by the meal proper, which was not to extend beyond midnight. At the consummation of the meal, the head blesses a third cup, followed by the singing of the second part of the Hallel. This time, Psalms 115 to, about, to, to, to 118. And then a fourth cup concludes the meal. So that's kind of the backdrop in terms of the Passover. It's in that context that Jesus inaugurates the, the, the Lord's Supper, the, the covenant ratified in his blood for the remission of sins for many. So it's in that context that Paul now is rehearsing the rules with reference to the Lord's Supper. Notice what he says in 11.23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This was most likely wine. This was most likely alcoholic. This was most likely something that could produce or promote inebriation on the part of persons that were recklessly engaged. In fact, Paul makes that condemnation of them in verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have Paul's admonition to Timothy. I don't know what his belly problems were, but Paul did, and Paul prescribed a bit of wine. 1 Timothy chapter 5, specifically at verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So the Bible does not condemn a moderate use of alcohol. That is the first point in terms of a biblical theology of alcohol. The second point is that the Bible does prohibit drunkenness. The Bible does prohibit drunkenness. You see it in the New Testament. You certainly see it in the Old Testament. We have the case of, uh, of Noah. We have uh, Lot. We have as well the specifics in the book of Proverbs. You can turn to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. So does the Bible forbid drunkenness or prohibit it? Yes. Notice in Proverbs chapter 20, specifically at verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You see, that's the problem. It's not the wine, it's not the strong drink, it's the one who's led astray by it. You'll search the scriptures in vain for the scriptures to say, this thing is bad. That thing is bad. I mean, there are, the, the house of prostitution is bad. The, the crack house is bad. But the TV, the alcohol, it doesn't put the blame on those things. Even the passage this morning that I read in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We often abuse that text. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We'll just devoid, devoid ourselves of money and we'll be fine. It's not money, it's the love of money. Here it's not the wine or the strong drink, it's the being led astray by it. That's the issue, that's what's condemned. The drunkenness, the approach to it, the, the pursuit of it to a point of inebriation. And then over at chapter 23, 
chapter 23, probably at least one commentator argues, Paul has this in his mind when he writes 518, specifically verse 31. And I think he refers to the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But notice in 2329, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes. Isn't that descriptive of a guy who goes out and gets hammered? He doesn't know how he got this wound. He didn't know how he gets this cut. I mean, the Bible is very real, isn't it? It doesn't, you know, kind of make things up or just kind of speak in an ethereal manner. It speaks specifically the way we would expect it to if God knew the sinful propensities of one's heart. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Now notice, those who linger long at the wine. Again, it's not a condemnation of the wine. Get rid of the wine. It's you lingering long at it. The problem isn't the cup of wine. The problem is the wretch that doesn't discipline himself or control himself with reference to the intake. See, the Bible blames the sinner. We typically blame the thing, and if it wasn't for the thing, then I wouldn't be in this mess. No, it's your fault or my fault that we're in the mess. So notice, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, now notice, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? See, that's the problem. It's an immoderate use of what God has given to be used moderately. Romans 13, Paul describes the wickedness of the day and uses this concept of drunkenness. Romans 13, 13, let us, not, or let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. It's in the vice list in 1 Corinthians, or, or 1 Corinthians 6, but let's look at 1 Corinthians 5, specifically at verse 11. Well, verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. This passage is valuable for a whole host of reasons, but one of them is to sort of mitigate that, that thought or that idea that some well-meaning Christians at times have. Well, I'll just separate myself from the filth of the earth and then I'll be fine. I just won't have any truck with the scum out there that's engaged in all manner of sin. That's not Paul's advice. How are we going to win them to the Lord Jesus if we separate our holy selves from them? Now again, separate yourselves from the sin, but brethren, the sinner needs recovery, needs redemption, needs the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Paul's point here. He's called for church discipline in the first section because a man had his father's wife. Leviticus 18 condemns that. The man's not supposed to have his father's wife. And not only did the man have his father's wife, but the church knew about it and was arrogant about it. Paul says, get this man out. And that's what brings him to consider, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immor immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I can't work at the post office because my, my you know, companion there is a, is a fornicator. I got to quit my job. No, if that's your tact, you better charter a, a, a rocket to Mars because that's the world you live in. 
your neighbors, your friends, your associates at work, everybody. They're, they're sinners. That's man's problem, remember? It's, it's sin. So the problem for Paul isn't that you associate with sinners. It's that you associate with unrepentant sinners who claim to be Christians and members of churches. That's the thrust of his argument. Now notice in verse 11, he, he, he corrects that. He, he says, I, I didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with ju those ju uh, judging those who are also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And I think we need to understand they're unrepentant. And everybody sins, brethren, prone to wander, prone to leave the God that I love. If somebody, well, you, you had a covetous thought. I, I can't eat with you tonight. No, the unrepentant sinner that's been taken through the process of discipline and he's irrecoverable. He doesn't come back. He doesn't repent. He doesn't forsake that sin. He doesn't make right his obligations to God and to the church in which he holds his membership. It's that person. Once they are put out, you don't eat with them. Why? Because you're not condoning their sin. You don't want to sort of give that, 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 that stamp of approval upon their sin. Oh yeah, everything's fine. No, that part of it is calculated to produce some degree of hurt on the man or woman so that he or she repents. But anyways, we see that there's this condemnation. 1 Corinthians 6, we have that list of those things that exclude persons from the kingdom of God. And notice specifically in verse 10. He says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We've got another statement in Galatians 5. We've got 1 Thessalonians 5. We've got 1 Timothy 3 in terms of the pro uh, prohibition relative to elders. Uh, Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 2. So the Bible does condone a moderate use of alcohol, but the Bible prohibits an immoderate use of alcohol. Hopefully that's not a surprise to anybody. Wow, I never knew that. You, you should have known that. If you read your Bible, that's the gist. That's what you get. So going back to Ephesians chapter 5, why does he put it here? It's kind of interesting, right? So all of a sudden, don't get drunk. Well, why does he do that? Therefore, do not be unwise, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Well, in the larger context, the conduct of the new man, that man who has been made new by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that man who has by grace believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that man who's come out of darkness into marvelous light, the conduct of the new man is characterized by what we find in Ephesians 5. That new man walks in love. That new man walks in light. That new man walks in wisdom. And therefore, he's not to walk immoderately. He's not to walk in that absence of self-control. He's not to walk as a drunkard. He's to walk in a manner that is consistent with the high calling of God upon him. Now, within Ephesus and in the Roman Empire at that time, there was a cult of Dionysius. Dionysius was the god of wine. And in Ephesus, apparently, they had ba uh, some background, which is not hard to believe, based on Acts chapter 19, and they're dallying with the occult and the black, uh, black magic and those black arts, that there was drunkenness that was prevalent in Ephesus. So the Apostle Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. But I think the next phrase helps us to understand the specific import here. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with with the Holy Spirit. So the effect of alcohol is something specific. You drink alcohol and you get hammered 
and then dissipation follows. Now this word dissipation firstly means wastefulness and then reckless abandon, debauchery, dissipation, profligacy. So the effect of alcohol upon a particular individual is that dissipation, debauchery, all manner of lawlessness and wickedness. What's the effect of the Holy Spirit upon a person? Well, in Galatians chapter 5, we learn that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And I think that that's probably what Paul is doing. He's pointing to two things that exercise an influence upon a person who participates in it. And I don't think this is without warrant. Remember the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes upon the disciples and they start to speak in strange tongues and other languages specifically to communicate the wonderful works of God? What's the sort of rebuttal on the part of the people there? These men are drunk with wine. They understood that they were under the influence of something. So when the Apostle Peter stands up as the first among equals to interpret what this phenomena was, he says these men aren't drunk with wine, as you suppose. It's only the third hour in the day. But they were able to see the effect or the influence of something on these people. I think that's the particular point in view here. Do not be drunk with wine, which yields itself in dissipation. It yields itself in debauchery. It yields itself in that sick fellow in Proverbs chapter 23. When can I awake so that I can have another drink? But the effect of the Spirit is contra that. It's not dissipation. It's speaking in a certain way. It's singing and making melody in a certain way. It's giving thanks in a certain way. It's submitting to one another in the fear of God. So the main emphasis under the hand of the apostle, again, condemn drunkenness. It's bad. It's wrong. Don't do it. But the idea is, is that drunkenness leads to dissipation. But you conversely, you by way of contrast, not only do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Spirit and that influence comes upon you, then these are the marks or these are the manifestations or these are the evidences or the effects of having been filled with the Spirit. A.T. Lincoln says both drunkenness and the spirit involve the self coming under the control of an external power. It suggests that that's Paul's meaning here. A.A. or C.H. Uh, Charles Hodge rather says, and as drunkenness produces rioting and debauchery, so the Holy Spirit produces a joy which expresses itself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the particular emphasis is upon the influencing of a person either to ill or to good. If you get drunk with wine, dissipation and debauchery is the end. If you're filled with the Spirit, then good things come. Good fruits obtain. Blessings and virtues flow from the man who's blood-bought and from the man who has the Holy Spirit. So now notice the specific exhortation. We've got the prohibition, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean, be filled with the Spirit? Is Paul commending a second work of grace? Is Paul Keswick in his theology? Is Paul have a higher life approach to the Christian, uh, Christian faith? These are all heresies that have attached themselves to a theology of the Spirit. Is Paul like these charismatics that say, well, you know, you've gotten the Spirit, but, but it's not really evidenced until you speak in tongues. Brethren, that doctrine is still alive and well. There are people out there that do not think you have the Holy Spirit unless you have spoken in tongues. 
That's not what Paul's talking about. Tongues has nothing to do with this particular passage. When he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, I believe he is suggesting to us to walk in harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ, to understand the, the presence and the power of the Spirit, to know that influence in your life. In terms of a theology of the Spirit, here in this brief book of Ephesians, look back at Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit is vital in terms, well, look at verse uh, chapter 3 first. The, the Spirit is vital in Revelation. The Spirit is vital, not just in the book of Revelation, but in the doctrine of Revelation. God reveals himself, especially through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Notice in Ephesians chapter uh, uh, 3, specifically at verse 5, which in other ages has, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. It's a great grand statement about the inspiration of the men who write the scripture, that what they write comes from the Holy Spirit. So this doctrine of Gentile inclusion in the covenant promises of God made to Israel has been revealed by the Spirit. So the Spirit is vital in Revelation. Go back to chapter 1 to see the Spirit vital in our salvation. Remember chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the apostle celebrates the work of the triune God in the salvation of sinners. The Father chose and predestined. The Son dies and redeems. The Spirit seals and guarantees. Notice in verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So whatever Paul's saying in terms of 518, be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's not suggesting there's no Holy Spirit in you. I think he's suggesting Crave more of the Holy Spirit. Pursue more of his influence in your life. The way the drunkard goes after the Jack Daniels, you as the faithful people of God ought to seek the Holy Spirit and his influence and his power and his presence in your life. Be filled with him. Because when you're filled with him, these sorts of virtues flow from the blood-bought children of God. Notice in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Notice at 430, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit is vital in our walk, in our communion with God. The Spirit is vital in terms of our salvation with the Lord. The Spirit is vital in terms of our worship. Remember in chapter 2, specifically at verse 18. For through him, Jesus Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. And then in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the Spirit is vital in terms of our worship. The Spirit is also vital in terms of our strength, our spiritual strength. Notice in chapter 3, Paul prays for the children of God in Ephesus. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of, of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, the Holy Spirit is vital and essential to our walk, to our communion, to our understanding of the Word of God, to our worship and our approach to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then notice one final thing that helps us, I think, understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Again, it's not esoteric, it's not mystic, it's not, you know, climb the mountain and just open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. It's seek His presence and seek His power, seek His influence in your life. I think that's the bottom line. Now notice the parallel passage in Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. I may actually have time to do more work on verse 19 since we're not going to get it tonight. And Ryan is preaching next Sunday, and then we have the Lord's Supper the following Sunday. Essentially, I want to deal with what's called the exclusive psalmody position. The first time I preached through Ephesians, I just didn't really investigate it much. This time around, I have investigated it much, uh, or, or much more anyway. And there's a good case to make that when Paul says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he is confining his attention to the psalms of David. Now, we'll deal with that. If that intrigues you, then come back in two weeks' time, and we'll try to tell you how that does work in a way that I think makes sense. But notice in Colossians, that's a bit of a teaser, huh? I, I learned that from Rick Horst. It was great on the Sunday, the first Sunday when Rick preached, and I was here that, that morning and that, that evening, and he said, you know, come back tonight because I'm going to give you part two. That's all you have to do? Well, sure, it worked. It worked. There were people there on Sunday night that don't usually come on Sunday night. Wow, I guess if you ask and seek and knock, you, you sometimes receive. So, so there's a bit of a teaser, God willing, that if you've ever wondered, how come there's people that only believe? Some of you come out of churches where it's exclusive psalmody. Was there a rationale? Did anybody you know, preach or teach why it was the case that they only sang the songs of, uh, Psalms of David? Again, I still have some questions that I need to wrestle with, but from Paul in Ephesians 5, when he says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I really think there's some merit and some value to the argument that he means the Psalms of David specifically. Again, two weeks' time, God willing, we'll look at that. But look at the parallel. So we try to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. I think the parallel passage in Colossians 3 helps us. Notice in verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, same sort of a context, conduct of the new man. The new man resists certain things. The new man puts on certain things. The new man lives in a manner consistent with the gospel of his salvation. So therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you. So you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now here's the parallel passage to Ephesians 5. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in 5.18, it's be filled with the Holy Spirit and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Colossians 3.16, it's let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Could it possibly be that the one explains the other and the other explains the one? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is to have the word of Christ dwelling richly in your heart. To have the word of Christ dwelling richly in your heart is to be filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the end game is the same, whether it's the, the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts or whether it's the Holy Spirit filling us, what is the result? The result is that we are affected by his influence and so we speak to one another or we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
I submit that the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, is not charismaticism. It is not Pentecostalism. It is not some second work of grace. It is not some higher life sort of Christian theology. It is what the people of God have. They are sealed and they have the Spirit as a guarantee. The emphasis is upon pursue more of His presence and power in your life. Find more of His influence in your life. Pray to God for more of His influence. Isn't this what Jesus says? In fact, you can turn back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Specifically at verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now turn to the book of Luke, Luke's gospel, specifically chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Same emphasis, same passage, Matthew, good things that the Father gives to those who ask. Well, Luke gives us a very specific version here. Notice, just picking up at about verse 11 in Luke 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You mean we just have to ask? <laughs> Being filled with the Spirit isn't a second work of grace. It isn't the higher life. It isn't a let go, let God. I don't have to climb Mount Sham and have a special season of meditation in order to get the more of the whole. You mean I just have to ask? Yeah, you just have to ask. So when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, he is simply encouraging the people of God to ask God for more of the presence and the power, the influence of the Spirit in their respective lives. And as a result, they will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They will sing and make melody in their hearts. They will express gratitude and thankfulness to God Most High, and they will submit to one another in the fear of God. Well, as I said, we'll look at the rest of the section in two weeks' time, the Lord willing. Tonight, just let us consider two things. On the one hand, we need to make sure we understand what the Bible says concerning alcohol. It doesn't condemn it, but it certainly doesn't condone drunkenness. So we need to take heart and guard our hearts relative to that particular temptation that is very prevalent in a society like ours. And secondly, we need to pray, we need to seek, we need to ask, we need to call upon God for more of the presence and the power of the Spirit. Yes, as we gather together for the church, as we gather together for corporate worship, we want the people of God to grow in their understanding of who the Lord is, and we want the non-people of God to become the people of God. Well, how are they going to do that apart from the presence and the power of the Spirit? So hopefully on Sunday morning, you set apart a little time, and on Sunday afternoon, you set apart a little time to pray that God sends the Holy Spirit. 
I like to invoke the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's not just a confession concerning his person. Oh, I believe there is a Holy Spirit. I think it's an ownership. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We need his presence and his power as we gather together for corporate worship so that he blesses the preaching of the word. But at the level of our individual Christian lives, at the level of our family lives, don't we all need more of his presence and power? This is Paul's emphasis, not Pentecostalism, not charismaticism, not tongue speaking, not prophesying, not raising the dead, but simply knowing his nearness in our lives, knowing his communion, knowing his, his blessedness, and knowing the influence of the Spirit so that we walk in a manner that is consistent with the gospel of our salvation. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section of scripture, and we pray for wisdom as we proceed. We pray for your grace to be upon our local church. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be upon each of us, and we pray that all over the, all over the world, the people of God would know his presence and his power, and that it would be evident in the way that we speak to one another, in the way that we praise and worship our blessed Savior, and in the way that we express thankfulness and gratitude to you, and the way that we relate to one another in terms of the fear of God. We ask that you would go with us now, watch over us in this coming week, be glorified in our lives, and we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.